Good morning and welcome. If, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn to the book of James, chapter 5. And this morning we'll be walking through verses 7 through 11. And uh, this passage is primarily talking about waiting. And I think in life we often find ourselves in situations in which we just have to wait. In fact, situations when we're not just waiting, but we're waiting on something that is out of our control, right? Maybe some of you now are waiting on that nice Amazon box to show up at your doorstep, right? You ordered something nice that you're excited about and you're just waiting on it to come. You can't control exactly when it comes, you're just waiting, Right? Or, or maybe some of you have at one point put an offer in on a house, right? And you're just waiting to see if that offer was accepted or not. Or maybe you've applied to a college or university or to graduate school and you're just waiting to find out if you've been accepted or not. Maybe you applied for a job and you're waiting to find out whether or not you got that job. Or maybe you're uh, really, really into this television show and the last episode and the last season ended with this big cliffhanger and you are just waiting on the next season to come out, right? I know that in my house, we are waiting for college football season to start back, right? In 32 days, but who's counting? Right? Maybe you're waiting for the newest technology. Right? Maybe you love the newest phone or the newest headphones or the newest computer or the newest update and you're just waiting on whatever company you prefer to release that new piece of technology. Likely we all remember what it was like as kids when we were just waiting on a holiday, waiting on Christmas to get here. We couldn't control it, just waiting. Right? These are all things that we wait on that we really have no control over. We don't control the postal system or when college football starts or when the new season comes out. Just waiting. But, but sometimes we're not waiting on something. Sometimes we're waiting on someone. Right? In fact, Brad Paisley, the country musician, I believe he wrote an entire song about this entitled, Waiting on a Woman. Right? The song opens with the lyrics. He says, sitting on a bench at West Town Mall. He sat down in his overalls and asked me, you waiting on a woman? I nodded, yeah, and said, how about you? He said, son, since 1952, (laughs) I've been waiting on a woman. Right? Now, remember, these are the words of Brad Paisley, not me. Right? But, ladies, if the shoe fits then wear it, right? But even if it fits, you can go try on more shoes and he'll just keep waiting. Because this is life. We know life is about just waiting sometimes. It's a reality for all of us. Throughout the day, there's different things that we have to wait on, things that we don't have any control over when they happen. However, we do have control over how we wait. Waiting is a part of life that we cannot control, but how we wait, that's exactly what James is addressing here today. 
And so if you were with us the last time we looked at James, we saw that in verses one through five of chapter five, James is addressing unbelievers about the misuse of their wealth. And here James is shifting back to talking to believers in verses seven through 11. And he's talking to them about how do we wait well? Now remember that James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians that have been scattered because of a shift in power. Likely the Babylonian empire has come to power in Israel. And so as a result, these Jewish Christians have scattered to avoid persecution. And so there's these pockets of communities, these pockets of churches of displaced Christians that James is writing to. And this letter would have circulated to those different small communities. Which meant that we can assume that these Christians reading this letter, reading these verses, they were suffering from a sense of homesickness. They were suffering from a sense of not being where they normally were, being out of place. And so this idea of how to wait would have been like sweet honey to the heart of those Christians. Waiting. What were they waiting on? They're waiting on the return of Jesus. We see that in verse seven, right off the bat. It says this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He repeats himself again in verse eight right away. It says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We know that in scripture, uh, repetitiveness, redundancy typically is meant to emphasize the importance of something. So in verse seven and then right again in verse eight when he says, be patient, the Lord is coming. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. We know that this is an emphasis that James has here and he wants these Christians who have been displaced, who are homesick to be patient. And that patience doesn't hinge on because the Babylonian empire one day is gonna go down and you can go back to Jerusalem. It doesn't hinge on because one day this will start feeling more like home. It hinges on because Jesus is coming back. Their patience is hinged on the second coming of Jesus. We know that Jesus has already walked this earth once. He came, he lowered himself to the form of man where he came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again three days later, and then he ascended into heaven. But we know that when he ascended into heaven, he promised, I will come back. Jesus will return to this earth. And this is what they're highly anticipating. Revelations 21 tells us that when this happens, he will come back, he will dwell with us. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Mourning and crying will be no more. The new will come, the old will pass away. This is what these homesick Christians are longing for. You can imagine, it's as if they woke up each day and they looked to the heavens, gazing, just waiting. Is he coming back today? Uh, imagine being in an uncomfortable social situation. Maybe kids, you're starting a new school or, or maybe you've started a, a new job or maybe you've been to a party where you didn't know anybody. 
right? We felt that where you're there, but you don't know anybody and you just feel awkward and you feel like you don't belong and you feel uncomfortable. However, you do know that there's one friend that's going to be there. Right? You know, one friend that's going to be in your class or, or one coworker that you have known previously that's going to be kind of a comfort to you. Or maybe you have one friend that's like, yes, I will be at that party. I don't know anybody. You don't know anybody, but we're in this together. Let's go. Right? And, and you can imagine you found yourself awkwardly kind of walking around the party, probably hiding in a corner somewhere, looking at your phone, scrolling on your phone because you're uncomfortable and you're awkward, right? And what are you doing? You're texting your friend. When are you going to be here? How far away are you? I don't know anybody. I feel silly. And what do you find yourself doing? Just gazing at the door, waiting. What are they going to be here? I'm parking. Okay, get up. Hurry up. Get in here. Gazing. This is the sense that I have that these Christians had, gazing at the door, just waiting for Jesus to return. This sense of, I feel uncomfortable. This world, it's different than I am. It, they don't believe what I believe. Their moral standard is different than my moral standard. Their purposes are different than our purposes. Their beliefs are different than our beliefs. The things they prioritize are different than the things that I prioritize. I just don't feel at home. And so they're gazing, just waiting for Jesus to return. Why else would James command them twice to be patient? Right? They had to have eagerly been anticipating the coming of Jesus. Otherwise, patience wouldn't be necessary for something that we're not looking forward to, right? My concern as I studied this passage for myself and for you as well is that when James tells us to be patient, my, my concern is that that might not resonate with us. My concern was that we might not feel the need to be told to be patient, right? In other words, I think rather than suffering, maybe from a sense of homesickness here on earth in Western culture, we're suffering from a sense of feeling too much at home. So that these words, be patient, Jesus is coming back. Be patient, Jesus is coming back. Don't resonate with us because we're going, well, what do you mean be patient? I wasn't even really thinking about it. The return of Jesus hasn't even been on my radar. I'm just kind of got my head down doing me here at home. What, what I want to show you is that it's not that we fail to anticipate the return of Christ. I don't think that's the case. But it's mostly that we fail to correctly identify that anticipation in our lives and assign it the proper spiritual meaning. Say it again. It's not that we're failing to anticipate the coming of Christ. I think it's more that we are failing to identify it when we are anticipating the coming of Christ and assign it its proper spiritual meaning. Here's what I mean. I'm gonna try to explain this. Every time that you feel anger at injustice around you, you are anticipating the coming of Christ. Every time that you prick your finger on a thorn or you stick your foot with a splinter or you ache, you get a headache, 
your back hurts, you anticipate the coming of Christ. Every time you mourn over the immorality of our culture, you're anticipating the coming of Christ. I believe that every time you feel overwhelmed or discouraged with your own sin and brokenness, you anticipate the coming of Christ. Every time there's this battle within you of, I know that this is what I should do, but this is what I really want to do, and you get frustrated over that battle, you're anticipating the coming of Christ. Every time relationships feel hard for you, whether it's a marriage or a parent-child relationship or a friendship or a coworker, every time relationships feel hard and you bear that burden, you are anticipating the coming of Christ. Every time you mourn the loss and the separation of a loved one that's passed away, you are anticipating the coming of Christ. You see, we anticipate the coming of Christ in all of these ways because we live in a broken world. And when Jesus comes back, all of the brokenness gets fixed. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation, ourselves included, is groaning to being redeemed. All of the things that God has created is in a state of brokenness and it is groaning to be made whole again, for all of the wrongs to be made right again. The problem is we just don't always recognize this, right? Because what happens is in those moments when we're complaining about our relationship or we've been injured or work is hard or we have this battle with indwelling sin, we think the ultimate fix is either circumstantial or worldly. The truth is the ultimate fix is Jesus just has to come back for all that's broken to get repaired. So whether we realize it or not, in all of those moments, we might think that we're just wishing that they would be nice to us, or we might think that we're just wishing that coworker would go on somewhere else, or we might think that I could just get it together for once, but really what we're doing is we're anticipating that Jesus would come back and right all that is wrong. That's why James says, be patient, Christians, until he comes. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I know a lot of times we struggle with this phrase, at hand, right, in verse eight, because we might think, you know, James was telling that to Christians thousands of years ago. Hey, Jesus is coming, it's at hand. And I know that, you know, I've lived through lots of generations where he never came back. And so it kind of gets pushed off of our radar because this phrase at hand is something that we kind of scoff at or maybe we overlook it and go, yeah, okay, I hear you, James, it's at hand. Was James not being honest? Did James think it was at hand when it really wasn't? How do we read this now? Sam Albury is helpful here. He reminds us that nearness is not necessarily immediacy. Nearness means that little now stands in the way before it comes to fulfillment. So the way that we receive this phrase at hand in verse eight, it's really a matter of perspective. And I think, I think nature helps us out a little bit here. So, so you have a picture here of a mayfly. You've likely seen a mayfly, uh, usually in areas of water maybe, kind of over a creek or over a river, or maybe if you have a pool, you've seen these kind of hovering around your back pool. The life of a mayfly is exactly 24 hours, one day. 
That's how long they live. One day. They've got one big day to go live it up. Hey, you do whatever you want. One day. Now, you can imagine a mayfly hovering over a creek and that this mayfly would be able to observe a tadpole, right? Now, you could see how it would be difficult for this mayfly observing this tadpole to understand that that tadpole could at any moment become a frog because this mayfly would have recognized no perceived change of that tadpole, right? You say, I've been watching this tadpole my whole life and nothing's changed. It's never going to change. It's never going to become a frog. Yet from our perspective, you and I would be able to walk out to the creek and observe the tadpole, and we would be able to understand that any moment or any day now, that tadpole will become a frog. You see, it's a matter of his perspective, and in this matter of the second coming of Jesus being at hand, we have to be cautious to avoid a mayfly perspective. Right? Isn't it easy in our very short lives to go, oh, it'll never happen. I've never seen any signs or perceived anything. And yet the eternal perspective is going, hey, not much has to happen before Jesus comes back. It's near. It is at hand. And a failure to understand that the return of Christ is at hand is to our spiritual detriment. I really believe that. I think that the anticipation of the return of Jesus is a very good thing. It is a proper thing for us. It puts us in a good, healthy place spiritually. And to adapt to the perspective of the Mayfly would be to our spiritual detriment. If we simply look past these words at hand and assume it's not really at hand, we will have a difficult time spiritually. So James tells us, be patient. It's at hand, be patient. Thankfully, James doesn't just say be patient and leave us there. Rather, James gives us an idea of what does life look like while we're being patient? So the title of this sermon is while we wait. What does life look like while we wait? Until he does come, what are we to be doing? And James gives us three examples here. And with each example, we'll have an application, okay, of what our lives are to look like while we're waiting and oftentimes in suffering while we're waiting. What does it mean to live a faithful life? The first example is this in James 5, 7. It's a farmer. He says, be patient, therefore, brother, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James knew that this example of a farmer would not be unfamiliar to his audience. Most of them were farmers, not out of a, of a hobby, but because of survival. It's just what they did. And so as a farmer, they knew that the crop was highly dependent on the level of rain that would come, right? Uh, the, the crop knew that the rain was essential for growing it and that the coming of the rain was in two seasons in this geographical area. That's why in verse seven it says, until it receives the early rain and the late rain. The early rain would have been in October and November. That was sowing season of the crops and the late rain would have been in March or April. This would have been growing season for these crops. And there was this sense in which these farmers could not control the rain, but all that they could do was wait. However, 
These farmers didn't sit on their hands during this season of waiting for the rain either, right? They knew that they were responsible for tilling and for weeding and for fertilizing and for planting and for caring for the crops and protecting the crops from animals. So in the same way, this is what the farmer teaches us. This is uh, the first thing in your, your message map on your bulletin. The farmer teaches us that while waiting, we should honor God with what we can control and trust God with what we cannot control. Sometimes wisdom is for us to take the time to know the difference. You see, it was confidence in the rain coming. Confidence that God would do what he said he would do that led the farmers to do what they needed to do. See, if, if they didn't believe that the rain would come, they would have known it's futile to do all this work. They did the work with confidence, trusting that the rain would come. In the same way, it's our belief as Christians that God is who he says he is and Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus will do what he says he will do, namely return, that gives us confidence in our work here as Christians. You see, the nearness of Jesus' return is the impetus for our obedience and faithfulness in being about the kingdom of God. As we sense that confidence that Jesus will return like he said he would return, it creates in us an urgency to do what we should be doing. There's a lot of applications here that I just don't have time to give you, but I'll give you a couple maybe this week as you go is to ask these questions about how you are trusting God with what you cannot control and maybe honoring God with what you can control, right? So maybe here's one. Where am I failing to trust God with something out of my control? What's one area in your life where you're just failing to trust God? You can't do anything about it. You're waiting. Trust God. However, another helpful question might be, in my realm of choices and things I can control, where am I being apathetic to kingdom growth? Where am I failing to honor God with what I can control? Here's the second example, the prophets, James 5.10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets here represent a group of people that would have been particularly anxious for the return of Jesus because they preached the gospel. They preached the return of Jesus, the message of scripture, and they did it under persecution most of the time. They were mocked. They were laughed at. They were tortured for being faithful to preach. In fact, Jeremiah is an example that I can't help but come to my mind. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was betrayed by his own family. We read that in Jeremiah 12. He was beaten and left in the stocks by the temple. We read that in Jeremiah 20. And then finally, Jeremiah is left in an empty well at the very bottom to sink down into the mud to have a cold, slow death of suffocating in the cold mud. Thankfully, a fellow prophet comes and rescues Jeremiah. But what we see here is that the prophet suffered. And James is reminding us here, he's equipping us to be patient by reminding us that the prophet's faithfulness to speak truth in the midst of the difficulty. Here's your applications for your message map. You can write this down. The prophets teach us that while waiting, we should expect difficulty and proclaim the gospel. As I mentioned with, with Jeremiah, many of the prophets suffered. They suffered greatly 
during their time on earth. You, you can imagine why they were so eager for Jesus to return as they had many times very difficult lives and yet remained faithful. But I think James uses the prophets because it's really important that the prophets remind us that we don't suffer in isolation. Isn't it interesting how quickly we can feel as if life is only hard for us? Right? How quickly we can get in, into this spiraled mindset of my life is harder than everyone else's and nobody understands what I go through on a daily basis. Right? Can't we feel that way? Isn't it easy to assume that we're the only ones that have had a really long day, that we went to work and work was difficult and I don't like my job and my coworkers are annoying and my boss is tyrannical and then finally I get to leave work after this long day and my family's kind of bothering me and so I just go through the drive-thru to get some food and the drive-thru takes forever and then I finally go through the drive-thru and I get my food and then I drove all the way home and I opened the box and I got the wrong thing. Right? As if that's the, the only time that's happened. Right? Or, or, or we often, often think we're the only first-time parents that didn't have a good night's sleep last night. Right? <laughs> like, like you're the only one with a newborn that's not sleeping well. Or, or maybe that you're the only one where sometimes marriage is hard. Or maybe you're the only one that's gotten a flat tire on the side of the road. Or, or has slow buffering internet and you missed the big play and your friend texted you and blew the ending. <laughs> right? Don't we sometimes think, it's only me. And I'm being facetious here, but, but we know that Satan operates in isolation. And what James is doing here is he's reminding us, he's, he's showing us the prophets to say that we come from a long line of suffering saints. We come from a long line of suffering saints. Take heart. Because listen, while we live in a broken world, we can anticipate the broken world. We anticipate the return of Jesus. And it's difficult, but guess what? It's difficult for everyone. It's broken for everyone. It has been and it will be until Jesus returns. You're not the only one struggling with hardship. If you feel that way, go read 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about all of the difficulties on his missionary journey. But here's what I also want you to hear. You're not the only one struggling with sin. Doesn't Satan convince us we're the only ones that aren't perfect? Right? Doesn't he convince us, well, nobody else struggles with this. This is too dark, this is too deep. No one, no one else would understand. He isolates us so that we don't confess and we don't get encouraged. And if you feel that's true, go read Romans 7 here where in Romans 7, Paul is just having this big internal debate and he's so frustrated with himself where he says, I always do what I don't wanna do and I never do what I do wanna do because I'm always doing what I shouldn't do and I'm never doing what I should do. Cursed me in this broken body. Or maybe just go have coffee with somebody today. Just have an honest conversation about, hey, where are you struggling? And God will show you we're not the only ones that struggle. You're not the only one with indwelling sin. But I think Satan tries to convince us that we are. That our, our marriage is maybe the only one that's tough right now. Or, or I'm the only parent that feels insufficient. Or I'm the only one that's been struggling with anger. Sin grows well in isolation. And so here, James bring up the prophets, say, hey, the prophets struggled too. The whole scripture's full of guys that struggled. The second emphasis here on, on um, your blank is that these difficulties did not prevent the prophets from sharing truth, right? In fact, I think sometimes God uses suffering to make our truth resonate even more than it would had we not been suffering. Even more than we would. 
which is why we have to share the truth, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, I took one of my, my sick kids to the doctor the other day, and we're in the doctor, we're in the waiting room, you know, of course, waiting to be seen, and there's other people around us in the waiting room, and as we're waiting, there's this one mom in the waiting room with her child that's just there for an annual checkup, I believe, and this mom is one of those uh, essential oil moms, okay? I'm sorry if it's you, but you know somebody, and I'm sorry. But she's that, okay? And so she's in this waiting room, and it's like everyone that walks in, she's like, hey, what's up with your kid? Because I got a thing. You wanna see this thing in my purse? Can I rub some oil on your kid? Because I can knock this out right now. You give me half the copay and call it a day, right? Like she's in there. She believes, she really believes. And I know it's not your fault, you really believe it. But you really, she really believes like that it cures everything. And so she's got these oils and she's pulling them out of her purse and oh, I got a little peppermint eucalyptus here. You just dab it on your nose. I promise you'll bench 300 pounds a day. She's giving them out. And, and she literally is engaging every single person that's walking in this waiting room. To her credit, okay, to your credit, to you, she really believed it and she went for it, right? Listen, church, while we're here waiting for Christ to return, we should all be the odd mom with the essential oils, shouldn't we? Because we live in a broken world and there's broken people all around us that are hurting. There is sickness everywhere. And we have the only true remedy and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ through an understanding of the gospel. And shame on us if we're not engaging broken people everywhere we go with the power of the gospel. That is the remedy to all things on this earth and beyond. How could we not look at the broken people around us and say, hey, I've got something that I think might, might really change your life. Can I share it with you? Shame on us if we're not doing that to every hurting person that we meet. The third example is Job. It says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're not familiar with Job, he has his own book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, right before the books of poetry. And I'd encourage you to go read it sometime. But Job was this incredibly wealthy man. He had all of these wonderful blessings and he slowly gets them stripped away one at a time and he has no idea why. Now, if you're reading the book, you'll see that the reason that's happening is because Satan actually goes to God and says, Job only loves you because you've blessed him with stuff. And, uh, and so God says, no, Job loves me for me. Right? And so Satan says, well, let's try it. And so he goes and he takes Job's wealth and he takes his family and he takes his health and all of the things that he had been blessed with, he slowly removes them. Now Job has his ups and downs, right? And, and Job does at times complain a little bit and cry a little bit, but he never renounces God because he understood there was a plan. He understood there's a God that is too good in fact, some of his friends come along and they even try and convince him, hey, all of this is happening because of your sin. Really good friends, right? All of this is happening just because of your brokenness. 
And Job refuses. He says, no, my God is good. My God is loving. If this is happening, there's got to be a reason. This is what Job teaches us. The final thing on your message map. He teaches us that while waiting, we must remember our current situation is not our forever situation. Our current situation is not our forever situation. You see, Job had this deep conviction despite the current difficulties in his life that what God was doing was something that was the most loving thing he could do and that there was something at the end of it. He understood where you are now is not where you will always be. And, and, and Job didn't even have the whole New Testament like we have that like guarantees what Job thought was true is actually true. Our ability to remain steadfast in the waiting is rooted in our trust in God's character. Look how James, he says at the end of verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He ties Job's steadfastness with the belief that God is who God says he is, that he is indeed a compassionate and merciful God. David Platt's commentary says this, Job is a good reminder for us that whatever you're walking through, it's not the end of the story. The end will reveal that the Lord is indeed very compassionate and merciful. You can't see it, but be patient, hoping in God's purpose. So while we wait, while life is hard and things are difficult, trust in the compassionate and the merciful character of God. See, the reason James says be patient is because we're not where we're going. We're in the waiting room. That's the whole point of the waiting room is it's not the final destination. It's where you wait. And we are currently here on earth just waiting. This isn't it for us. So yes, it's hard and things are broken and we're broken and it's difficult, but something else is coming. This isn't the end of our story. Remember that circumstantially, but also remember that for yourself and your own struggles. Right? The, the addiction that you struggle with or the sin that you struggle with or the anger or the brokenness or whatever it is, that's not the end of your story. In fact, Jesus says, I promise that he who began a good work in you will complete it. It's gonna be finished one day. One day, all those sin struggles, they're going away. You're not gonna struggle anymore. Remember this for yourself, but remember this for each other as well. Jonathan Dodson says this, he wrote a book. He says, take the long view of people. Too often we judge people on the madness of a single moment or a crazy season of life when what they need is someone who will take a long, gracious view of who they are becoming. And not only who they are becoming, but also who they will one day be. See, imagine if we saw our brothers and sisters in Christ, not for all of the deficiencies and the faults along the way, but as that one day they will be made whole again in heaven with us. And that is their final destination. That's who they will one day be. I encourage you, see your spouse this way. Look at all of the redeeming qualities and characteristics in them and how they're growing and know that one day they'll be made full into a perfect saint in heaven. 
What if we saw each other this way? See, James knew the difficulties of the broken life. He knew the difficulties of the broken world, broken people around him and his own brokenness. But he was able to look past that and recognize that the present brokenness is not the end of the story. There's more. In fact, James would have been there on the Mount of Olives with all of the other apostles. He would have been standing right there with his toes in the grass watching Jesus ascend and the clouds open up into glory. He watched his brother ascend into heaven and he heard his brother say, hey, I'm gonna be coming back. I promise I'm coming back. But as they're standing there watching Jesus ascend into heaven, look what happens. There's these two men. This is Acts 1.10. As they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So just as James clearly saw Jesus ascending into heaven, he believed that he would come back. But these men interrupt their gaze and say, hey, why are you just staring? He's coming back. Because just like he knew he went, he knew he would come. And the men said, hey, while we're waiting, guess what? It's gonna be hard. Life is just hard. The world's just broken. But where we are now is not where we will be because he will come back. So be patient, be steadfast, proclaim the truth. And until he comes back, know that we've just got work to do.